Good morning, everybody. It's me, Andy Kind. You join me from the top of Tapton Golf Course. I'm not actually on the golf course this week because people have very selfishly started playing golf. Why do bad things happen to good people? By which I mean me. I hope you're doing well and that this sustained lockdown isn't causing you too much um, angst and anxiety. Um, I downloaded TikTok this week, which was a mistake. I tend to feel quite young in myself, but I downloaded TikTok and very quickly realised that I actually died in the 12th century. I am incredibly old by comparison. Alan is around somewhere. Uh, I did leave the house with him, but we saw a bloodhound and he bolted across the golf course, so maybe he'll turn up at some point. I, I don't really know. We are going through uh, Nehemiah and I'm on to Nehemiah 7, and the subtitle of Nehemiah 7 is The Exile's Return. Now, it's interesting. I do do some work in preparation for this. I don't just make it up as I go along. And um, one of the commentaries I was reading actually doesn't have anything on Nehemiah 7. It's a long list of genealogies with a little bit of description either side. But as I'm a fan of saying, the Bible is the collection of books that God was happy for us to have. So everything in there is worth looking at, and I'll see if we can pick out two or three important things as we go through. So it's called The Exile's Return. And an exile is basically somebody who is separated from their home. They are away from their home, from where they were meant to belong. That's what an exile is. I saw on uh, on Instagram, I think it was this week, um, someone had put a, a little inspirational quote saying, um, hey guys, just a reminder to put yourself first today. And I thought that's a disastrous thing to do. Like, first of all, I don't need a reminder to try and put myself first. I'm constantly wanting to put myself first. I am the most important person in my life by nature. And um, I don't need to be reminded of that. But actually, people become exiles by putting themselves first, by separating themselves from other people. And, you know, I realised as I was thinking about it that that's the whole story of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, however you want to read it, whether it's symbolic or, or literal, actually the story of the Garden of Eden is people, human beings, deciding to put themselves first. This is where the whole mess of humanity started, by people putting themselves first. In, uh, in the book of Genesis, where God's searching for Adam in the garden, he says, where are you? Where have you gone? He's not really asking for directions. God knows exactly where he is. What he's doing is, is rebuking Adam. He's pointing out to Adam that if God's asking where he is, it shows that Adam isn't with God. The first exile was Adam and Eve deciding to put themselves first. And so the whole story of scripture is about God going after the exiles. And then once he's got them back, like, what do we do? What do we do when we've returned from exile? And Nehemiah, of course, in Nehemiah 7, they've finished, they've completed the wall, but the work isn't over. Um, there's a book by Andy McNabb called Seven Troop about how he joined the SAS. And um, he had his sand-coloured beret flung at him once he'd passed selection. And uh, the uh, warrant officer or whoever said, um, congratulations, it's hard to get, it's harder to keep. Once he got into the SAS, it became even harder to stay in the SAS. And this is what Nehemiah 7 is really, is really about. It's once the work of the wall is being completed, there's still a lot more work to do in sustaining it. So, we are exiles. And just going back to that put yourself first, what we're not saying is, like, 
don't allow yourself to be looked after. As I said in my previous talk, God loves to care for you. The Bible says, let times of refreshing come from the Lord. Second Corinthians says, the God of all comfort comforts us in all our afflictions. God is all about comforting you and showing you care. But that's not the same as self-care. I think we swing too far between these binary positions of either um, you put yourself first or you allow yourself to be trampled. No, there's a, there's a, a pendulum swing. And actually putting God first allows you both to look after other people's needs because actually the person who is the chief of caring for people is caring for you. The ultimate Florence Nightingale is the Lord. So let God care for you so you can care for others. So there's only a couple of sort of quotable verses. Verse 3, station the citizens as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. So the wall's been completed and Nehemiah says, station the citizens as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. But basically the message is everyone is on watch. And again, the Bible is full of watch and pray, pray and watch. Stay alert, if you like. Stay alert, control the NHS, protect the virus. I don't know if that's the exact, I don't think that's the right phrase, but it's something like that, isn't it? So the message is watch and pray, be alert because as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, we are not immune from attack. We are not immune from outside influences. The Bible is not always very reassuring about the stuff that might happen to you, but it's incredibly reassuring about the stuff that can happen in you, regardless of what happens to you. But we need to stay alert. We need to watch and pray. The Great Wall of China, um, so high you can't go over it, so wide you can't go around it, so thick you can't go through it, was actually penetrated on several occasions. In, in 1644, it was um, penetrated because they didn't get over the wall, but they they basically turned the guards. So one of the captains of the gate, the big gate in the Great Wall of China, the opposition turned him and he opened up the gate and they let him through. So it doesn't matter how well protected you think you are, actually, it's what's going on in the heart that's really important. You've got to guard your heart, protect your heart. And, and protect the hearts and guard the hearts of the people around you. There's a long list of genealogies. Um, basically, most of this is genealogies. And uh, a genealogy was like a, a birth certificate. They didn't have official um, driving licenses or identity documents or blockbuster video cards. Well, that's a relevant reference, Andy. But um, the genealogy was basically their display, their proof of citizenship. And um, I was reading through, although like, I'm tempted to skip over all the genealogies, a thought occurred to me that, wow, all these families are listed as belonging to God's family. All these families are listed in the Bible. Imagine if your family was name-checked in the Bible. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like if you were mentioned in dispatches. The good news, of course, is that your family is mentioned in the Bible. The book of John says to all those who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. When you become a Christian, when you start following Jesus, Christian just means Jesus, it means little Christ, little Christ, Jesus follower. Once you give your life to Jesus and you let him be the king of your life and you allow God to be your father, you get welded in to a family which doesn't discriminate by race or creed or colour or nation or time in history 
you're a member of God's family and you're no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. So actually, you don't need to write down your family tree in the same way that these guys in Nehemiah did. Because once you say yes to Jesus and to start following him, you, bec you become a member of God's royal family. You are given royal robes that you don't deserve. You are royalty. You are literally a prince or a princess. This is biblical. This is not Disney. Disney is an imitation and a corruption of the good stuff that comes from scripture. But you are literally a prince or a princess. So you've got all these genealogies um, in Nehemiah 7. And, um, and then in verse 61, it says, some of them were unable to prove their ancestry and therefore were disqualified. Again, the great news for us is that we don't need to prove anything using administration or logistics. Do you follow Jesus? Have you said yes to following Jesus? The good news is that you will never be disqualified from that. He will never disqualify you. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You can opt out, but he will never cast you out. It's all about family and, and having a, a family structure. You see, family needs structure. And the church, the wider church, not just individual churches, but if you like, individual churches are models of the wider church, which is a model for God's wider family. And these things need structure. God has put structure and organisation in place for us to operate as family. We live in a society that is very anti-commitment, anti-structure, anti-organisation. But, but actually, it's not always... I understand that because some organisations are, are oppressive um, and some leadership can be a, a, abusive. But actually, structures in themselves are, are, are not a problem. Someone might say, I find structured church oppressive. Well, there's no such thing as unstructured church. It just doesn't exist. And in the Bible, God is constantly loving to organise his people for their benefit so that they can live in union together, so they can serve God together, so they can build his kingdom. You know, if someone says like, and I've said this in the past, I find structured church oppressive. Essentially, you are despising what God has ordained because God has ordained structure and organisation. That doesn't mean, you know, we have to be on PAYE because all these things can be corrupted, but actually structure is, is not a bad thing in itself. Everything that works needs structure. In the 90s, um, Kevin Keegan, who was a, a football player and manager, he was manager of Newcastle. And in the mid 90s, um, Newcastle were the most amazing team. They had loads of flair. They had uh, Fastino Espria and David Ginola and uh, Les Ferdinand and to a lesser extent, David Batty. And um, they were brilliant. And on one season, I think 95, 96, they were storming ahead in the league. They were 12 points ahead. And they were just amazing. They didn't have a lot of structure, but they just had flair. They used to just, they used to just overwhelm the opposition. And then what happened is that um, Manchester United under Alex Ferguson came along, unfortunately, and overtook them. Because actually, Ferguson built his teams on structure and organisation. And Newcastle ran out of steam. When people learned how to deal with them, 
they ran out of steam and they didn't have any structure they didn't have a good foundation to build on they were just told to go out and play and so they were overwhelmed and you know the Newcastle team of the mid-90s was one of the the best teams the Premiership has ever seen and they won absolutely nothing they won absolutely nothing because they didn't have structure and Kevin King went on lovely man great manager went on to manage England and a similar thing couldn't do anything because actually you need structure you need organization for something to work for something to last Every Christian ministry, and that might be a a charity, it might be a a church, it might be just a a Christian family, every Christian ministry is one short generation away from destruction. Because you can't make the journey alone. I'm watching Walking Dead at the moment, but with any kind of drama, any kind of um, novel where there's uh, shaky bonds between family or, or a group, there's always some outside influence that seeks to divide them and destroy them, divide and conquer. And it's the same with the church. You cannot make this journey alone. You cannot do church on your own. You cannot follow Jesus on your own. You were never, you were never meant to. And you are, you are not strong enough to do it in your own right. It doesn't matter how wrong you think other Christians are getting it. You're getting it wrong as well. We're all getting it wrong. We're all failures. But actually, we are called to work together to build God's kingdom, to follow his model. And he's put us into He's put us into families. What Nehemiah shows us is that citizenship and membership, community, is important. It's key. And again, later on in the Bible, in Acts chapter 6, the widows and the orphans aren't being looked after, so they organise. They restructure so that people can be provided for. Uh, Titus, when Paul um, writes to Titus, he, he tells him to appoint elders not just for the sake of it, not just so they can have some kind of, you know, bureaucracy, but because actually without structure, like nothing can happen. Structures can be abused, but structure in itself is not a problem. Augustine, who was one of the great early theologians of the Christian church, said, if you don't have the church as your mother, then you don't really have God as your father. The point, the point being that God the Father has called you to be part of the of the mother church. If you don't have the church as your mother, you probably don't have God as your father. Oh, hello, mate. Alan's here. What's that? The bloodhound was chasing you across the golf course, so you put on a cap, picked up a rake, and pretended to be a gardener. Nice. Nice, bro. So, anyway... The church um, throughout scripture is described as several things, a city on a hill, a holy nation, the body of Christ. All of these things, cities, nations, bodies, they all need structure and organisation. Your body needs to be organised in a certain way for you to function. If your ears and your feet suddenly decided to swap, well, you wouldn't be very good at listening, you wouldn't be very good at walking, and you certainly wouldn't want to go into any social gatherings. You can't do it on your own. The strongest bicep detached from a shoulder or the rest of the body can't lift any weights. We, are, we were made to function in family, in community, within the structure that God has ordained. The strongest arm is useless unless it is attached to the rest of the body. I don't know, um, I don't know any effective Christians who aren't part of a church family. 
I don't know, and I know loads of Christians, I know loads of effective Christians and plenty of ineffective ones. I don't know any effective Christians who aren't part of a church family. You see, we are, we are a congregation, not an audience. The wider body of Christ, we're a congregation, not an audience. Watch and pray, but not just watch. You're called to follow Jesus, not just to observe. When you stop committing to structures, to the structures that God has ordained, you'll end up, you'll end up nowhere. I'm speaking from experience here. When I was, um, when I was in my twenties, and even probably into my early thirties, I spent a lot of time outside of church. I wouldn't really go to church. I remember, like on a Sunday morning, thinking, "No, I can't be bothered." Um, and I would say things like, oh yeah, I'm just taking some time out from church at the moment, or I find structured church oppressive, or yeah, I haven't found a church that really fits my theology. But it all came out of insecurity, it all came out of pride, it came out of arrogance actually, I was very arrogant. Um, and uh, I sometimes refer to myself as, as a, a, a crucified narcissist. I'm very naturally narcissistic, but you know, you have to nail these things to the cross. So I spent a lot of time out of church and um, what that allowed me to believe was actually I was, you said underneath that was the belief, the false belief, that I was somehow like getting it right and other people weren't. That, you know, like God just really affirmed what I wanted to do. Yeah, I was doing my comedy and I was, it was going really well. I was quite popular and, you know, I talk about Jesus on stage a little bit. Um, and then I'd just be quite denigrating, quite critical about church structure. The problem was I wasn't really in my word. I wasn't reading my Bible. Jesus was like my life coach. He wasn't even that. He was just my cheerleader. I saw him as just my cheerleader. And eventually my, my wife told us, um, told me that I should go back to church. So um, I started going to this church in Moss Side in Manchester called Trinity Community Church. And um, it was like, it was grim in lots of ways. We met in a, a, a building, a, a rundown building in Moss Side in Manchester, which looked like a toilet and didn't have a toilet. Um, and it was a church of about 40 people, 50% of whom were um, Iranian converts, which was great, but I didn't understand anybody. I didn't understand what they were saying. And uh, there was this guy, the minister was called uh, John Brett, and still is called John Brett, as far as I'm aware. And he'd been working as a missionary in Africa. And um, I remember listening to him week in, week out. And for the first few weeks, I'd think, you know what, no, I hate this. This is, this is not good, it's not my theology. But what I saw was a guy who was preaching unpopular messages because he was preaching the Bible. He wasn't preaching what he thought people wanted to hear, but what he thought God wanted to say. And I remember going up to him several weeks on the trot and saying, that was a, a great message, John, I hated it. Because what was going on was that I was realizing that although I would have said, oh, that's not my theology, my theology was wrong. My theology was wrong because it was built on me. It was built on elevating and celebrating me. I was after God's blessings, but not God himself. I was more in, interested in what God could do for me than what God was doing in me. And as I sat there, week in, week out, listening to this guy preach an unpopular but biblically sound message, I started to feel so ashamed of myself. And the, my arrogance and my pride 
just came to the surface and I realised I had to deal with it. And I wouldn't be able to do what I do now. I wouldn't be doing street evangelism. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be preaching the gospel if it wasn't for that change of heart that I had to make, that repentance that I had to, to go through. To see someone preaching the gospel faithfully to a small crowd, most of whom didn't understand him, in a building that had no adornments whatsoever, without any kind of glory, without any kind of celebration. I, I realised how wrong I had got it. My theology was wrong. And I had hated authority up to that point. I hated authority. Who was a church leader to tell me what to do? They're not my boss. They're not my real dad. The problem is that my real dad in heaven, God, (laughs) um, does say that I should submit to authority. It doesn't mean I have to agree with everything, but it means that actually within that structure, it's good to have a leader. There's no leaderless organisation that succeeds. There's no structureless church. It doesn't exist. It doesn't work. I remember also... um, in that time of being out of church, speaking to a guy in Starbucks, a, a guy who wasn't a Christian, and, and telling, him, telling him about, oh yeah, like I, uh, you know, I have loads of doubts. I doubt every day about my faith. And, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm still a Christian. And I realized, looking back, that I was just trying to be relevant. I was trying to win friends, but not souls. Because this guy said to me, to be honest, it, it sounds really painful. If you're doubting every day, well, it just sounds really painful. I was, tr- I was trying to please a culture that doesn't like commitment, doesn't like structure, doesn't like certainty. But, you know, faith is the certainty of things not seen. Faith in Jesus is the certainty that although we can't see him, we can experience him. We can know him, even if we don't see him with our physical eyes. Hyper-individualism, lack of commitment and mistrust of authority is not the Christian way. I had to really repent, even in my early 30s, had to really repent of hating authority, of refusing to be led. Because hyper-individualism, lack of commitment and mistrust of authority is not the Christian way. It doesn't mean that you don't dissent when something is ungodly. But what it does mean is that when godly people are trying to lead you, even when they're getting it wrong, you, you let them get it wrong because actually... They're trying to follow Jesus. We are all imperfect people. And I'm not speaking about any individual situation or any individual person here. I'm just talking about what's come out of the text. And from my own, my own past, I, despising leadership, castigating and finding fault with, with people in authority just because you're not in authority or you think you could do it better, it actually doesn't build kingdom. It doesn't build God's kingdom. It tears it, it, tears it down. There's a, there's a dog going past and I didn't want to be distracted by it. A lukewarm Christian is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. You cannot follow Jesus a bit. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need more fans. He needs more followers. Jesus is not a hobby. He's not your life coach. He's not your guru. He's not your get out of jail free card. He's the Lord. He's the source of love and light. He's the way, the truth and the life. He's the power to which every other power will have to come and give an account, whether they want to or not. Do not mistake Jesus Christ for a conjurer of cheap tricks. He is the Lord and he loves you. And when you follow him, you're following him to the greatest adventure you could ever go on. 
You don't have to follow Jesus. But once you've made the decision to follow him, well, do that then. It's like that um, conga line they did for the NHS. They didn't know each other, but they were following the leader. And they, they did it by holding on to the person in front of them and the person behind them. That, that's what it means to follow Jesus. It's being in that conga line where you don't necessarily know where you're going, but you're going somewhere and you're following the leader. You're trusting that the person ahead of you knows what they're doing, or at least is following somebody who's gone ahead of them. Jesus is not a hobby. He has brought you and us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So live as people of light. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. If Jesus is your king, then follow him. Choose today whom you will serve. Not choose whom you will serve today based on your feelings or whatever zeitgeist meme is being shared around. Choose today whom you will serve and make that commitment. Be obedient to Christ because you're being obedient to the source of love. The person who loves you most in the universe is asking you to obey him because by obeying him, we get love, we get joy, we get hope, we get freedom, we get purpose. Do not despise what the Lord has ordained. Do not despise structured church. You know, last thing to say, in 1889, a, a metal structure was completed in a, in a city and uh, it, was, it was roundly, largely mocked and criticised as being monstrous and out of place. It was a structure that was seen as ugly and actually out of date. Um, that structure is the Eiffel Tower and it's now seen as one of the most glorious landmarks anywhere in the world. Alexander Eiffel built it. The, the structure of church might well be despised by people, but for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we can take pride in the structure because it's the best way we've got. It's the, it's the best mode we've got for loving God and serving God and loving and serving other people. So that's the, that's the message of Nehemiah 7. It's a hard message, but I've learned from people like John Brett and latterly from Carl that sometimes preaching a hard message is, is the right one um, because, because actually there's more stuff important than putting myself first. Have a great day.